I'm sure the Hallmark store doesn't have a section for Christ the King Sunday uh, greeting cards. I know it's not a usual greeting, uh, but let's be honest, the church is often an unusual place. Uh, Where else do we get together with friends and strangers and sing songs together and pray? And uh, It's a wonderfully unique place, the church is. Christ the King Sunday, also known as Reign of Christ, is the end of the church year. And it ends the church year with the recognition of Christ's eternal reign over all creation. It's a reminder of where our loyalty, our obedience truly rests. Not with any earthly kingdom, but only with God's word incarnate, Christ Jesus. So to honor this day, we turn again to John's revelation, this time uh, to the very beginning after the introduction. Uh, and this uh, sermon today concludes our, our series for the month of November Uh, And I'm excited to begin a new one next uh, week uh, for the season of Advent, uh, where as we get closer and closer to Christmas, each week we'll meet one of the gospel writers and see how they're preparing uh, their home for uh, for the coming of Christ. So what what, uh, the coming of Christ means to each gospel writer. Uh, Very excited for that. So we're doing things a little differently today. Uh, I'm going to read the, the second lesson, and then we're going to have a sung response before the sermon, uh, and that'll be verse 2 from Crown Him With Many Crowns. So I invite you to listen now with open hearts and minds as we encounter God's Word together from the first chapter of Revelation, beginning with the fourth verse. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us to be a kingdom, priests serving his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and on his account all the tribes of the earth will wail. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's a phrase that English teachers and, you know, other forms of grammar sticklers in our lives love to share, uh, and I've seen it recently on social media and even on bumper stickers. Uh, the phrase, this phrase appears twice, uh, and the words read, let's eat, Grandma. So the very first one, it just says without punctuation, let's eat, Grandma. Below it, it says, let's eat, comma, 
grandma. Then below is the, the so what, commas save lives. <laughs> this is done to show the importance of using proper punctuation. So often in our world and culture of texting and tweeting, grammar and the significance of word choice and order can go by the wayside. English professor Marilyn McIntyre wrote a book I've shared with you uh, here before, Caring for Words in a Culture of Lies, says that because of this today, words often come to us processed like cheese, depleted of nutrients, flattened and packaged, artificially colored and mass-marketed. This certainly wasn't the case for the Apostle John in his writing of Revelation. Words matter. Grammar and punctuation matter. And we see it here in our lesson today. His revelation opens like any other Greek letter in the day. John identifies himself, the writer, says who he's addressing, the seven churches, and gives a typical Christian greeting like Paul does in many of his letters, grace to you and peace. But here is where we notice his care for language. He says, grace to you and peace in the name of the one who is and who was and who is to come. Now, typically, when we would say that phrase, we would say it chronologically, right? We might say, who was and is and is to come. This was likewise the common way of forming such a statement in John's time as well. But John does something really interesting here. And this phrase appears twice in our lesson. Word order matters greatly in Greek, just like it does in English. So placing something first secures its significance. So John intentionally breaks the rules of Greek grammar and syntax, and he places the significance in this phrase on the present, saying the one who is and was and is to come. Lutheran scholar Caroline Lewis claims that this phrase is Christ the King Sunday in a nutshell. Why is that? Let's remember, John was writing to the seven churches in Asia all of whom were struggling with what it meant to follow Christ in the shadow of the Roman Empire. See, the emperor claimed ultimate rule over the world. Even more so, the emperor claimed that he was among the gods, forcing the populace to refer to him not only as king, but Lord and God. Anyone who challenged this authority, who refused to refer to the king, to the emperor in this way, would be subject to persecution, arrest, maybe even death. So John's writing, he's writing here to a community of conflicted Christians who are worried about claiming Christ as Lord given the consequences. So there was Roman occupation, but there was also Christian accommodation. Accommodation of the empire and its emperor worship. But John boldly claims here that Christ's rule, Christ's lordship is present tense. It's here and now. This is a message of hope, of comfort, but it was also a message of challenge to Christians to stand up and speak out against any empire, any authority claiming lordship, to remain faithful no matter the cost. John adds to his act of defiance by also claiming that Christ is not only king, he's the ruler of anyone who calls themselves a king or a ruler. In other words, what John says is, yes, that means you too, emperor. 
The origins of today's feast day, Christ the King, had a similar emphasis. It's actually one of the newest dates in our church calendar, declared in 1925 by Pope Pius XI, claiming that Christ's kingship is not something gained by violence or usurping another's power, but simply from his essence and being, Christ himself is king. And so Pius XI declared a feast day for Christ the King in 1925 to remind Christians that their ultimate allegiance was to their spiritual ruler in heaven, not any earthly power. This was actually a bold statement against the then Italian fascist uh, leader Benito Mussolini, who at the time claimed earthly supremacy. I have to think John would have been proud of the church for declaring this day and also making it the end of the church year as our constant reminder that Christ is King of King and Lord of Lords. As 21st century American Christians, we may not fear persecution or oppression for our beliefs, but we do have some competing ideologies colliding in our midst, trying to claim authority, trying to claim ultimate rule in our lives. I think it's safe to say that the twin demons of fear and hate are among, are chief among these things that are jockeying for position of control in our world. Perhaps John's words from 2,000 years ago are more fitting for us today than we might realize. Something else John's careful use of words does is not only claim the present tense of God's reign, But his writing also paints a picture of what that reign, of what Christ's kingdom already looks like. You see, the thought back then, and I'd argue for many today, is that we're here on earth living our lives. But up in heaven is God's kingdom, in which Christ reigns as king. The earthly and the heavenly realms seem to exist separately in our minds. They're like parallel lines that will never meet. That is, of course, until John shares his revelation. Listen to verse 7 again. Look, he's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And on his account, all the tribes of the earth will wail. In the very first verses of John's revelation, after the pleasantries, he wastes no time getting to this reality. Christ's reign has broken through the boundary between heaven and earth. Now through Christ, God's reign of peace, justice, hospitality, and love is here to stay on earth. On the other hand, fear, hate, violence, death, all these things that try to claim authority from God, all these things that hinder joy in life, all of these have officially been put on notice by our Lord of love, Jesus Christ. John is saying here that Christ's reign on earth is visible now by faith, but one day it will be the reality for all of creation when Christ returns. The job of Christians then, in the meantime, between the resurrection and the second coming, is to live into God's kingdom, into Christ's present tense reign, here and now. John says that Christ has made us to be a kingdom, priests of his Father, as Christians, we don't, get to sit, uh, we don't get to patiently sit on our hands and wait for Christ's reign to be complete. But we are to be priests of this kingdom. We are to be active and involved. We are to be ambassadors of Christ's present tense reign of peace, love, and justice on earth. That fear, hate, violence are no longer 
not only no longer in charge, but that they're also no longer acceptable. So the question then becomes, how can we live into Christ's reign today? How can we live and be present tense Christians? If we lived into this reign more fully, how would it change the way we think about our world and our lives? As many of you know, I'm a big college sports fans, particularly with my Michigan State Spartans. As you also know, I uh, am also a parent of two young children who get up really, really early, which means I am often not able to watch late night games. But thank the Lord for the gift of DVR. Often during football season, I'll finish a late Saturday night game Sunday morning while putting final touches on a sermon. And my, uh, my uh, very uh, detailed plan usually works out well, except when it doesn't. Uh, it, often it'll be myself accidentally checking Facebook or getting a text from a friend revealing the outcome from a game. But sometimes my plan is spoiled by someone revealing the outcome of the game. This happened a few weeks ago. I found out my team won from a message from a friend uh, through a late night text I saw in the morning. But you know, I still had to watch that game. The interesting thing was, as I watched the game, was even though I knew the outcome, I still rode the highs and the lows of the game. But I did it with the confidence of knowing that my team had already won. I knew how the game ended. I kind of think this is the feeling John is trying to instill in the first century Christians that he's addressing in his revelation. John's revelation of the risen Christ shares visions of the future, of Christ's ultimate victory over all that inhibits the joy of human life and relationship with God and each other. But John's visions of the future always have, pre- always have present tense implications for Christians. Remember, Jesus is the Lord who is and was and is to come. John gives his followers a glimpse of the future victory of Christ. He does this that they might boldly proclaim him as Lord here and now, that they might be present tense Christians. John and his churches knew that doing this, claiming Jesus as Lord, would lead to persecution, maybe even death by Rome. But his vision proclaims that death is not how their story will end. Jesus Christ is the Lord of time, the Alpha, the Omega, the very meaning of history. He doesn't just bring the end. He himself is the end. Revelation allows Christians to boldly live in the present, knowing how the story ends, with a new heaven and the new earth, knowing that nothing on earth or otherwise can stand in the way of this reality. What does it mean to live as present tense Christians of our Lord of love? It means to boldly live, to boldly live as those who know how their story ends, with Christ's victory over death and all that harms human life and community. It means living into that vision, that reality here and now, no matter how at odds this vision is with the world around us. If we're truly living into Christ's present tense reign, as our Lord of love, then in an age when fear seems to always be on the rise, we bear witness to hope. In a time where there's still hatred, we bear witness to love. 
In a time when it seems that violence reigns, we are to live by peace. And most importantly, in a day when people are consumed by death, we are to bear witness to, but also embody life. Friends, as we approach the season of Advent and once again await our Lord's coming in a manger in Bethlehem, may we go and boldly live as citizens of Christ's present tense reign, bearing witness to hope, peace, joy, and love. And may we do so as those who know how our story will end. In the name of the Lord of love, who is and was and is to come. Amen.